Amen. Thank you, Maddie. Uh, good morning. Uh, good to see you all this morning. My name is Drew Bennett. I'm the pastor here at Redeemer. Um, if you have a Bible and you'd like to turn there, we are in the middle of a series on the book of Galatians, which is one of the letters that Paul, who is a missionary and a church planter, uh, born out of Jesus's life, moving into the, the church, the group of people, the followers of Jesus that developed, and then they began to send people out to plant churches other places. Paul was a church planter who traveled all throughout uh, the regions of, of around the Mediterranean Sea and into Asia and some of the, all those different places. And Galatians is a letter that he wrote to run one of the, the groups of churches in a geographical region called Galatia. And we are, I believe, in week four of what is going to be a 12-week series on this book of Galatians. And so I would ask you to, to turn to Galatians chapter 2 with me. We're going to read there from Galatians chapter 2, beginning in verse 11. So we're going to pick up a little bit of what we, what we said last week, the story of, P, of Paul hosting Peter. Peter comes to Antioch, and Paul hosts him, has to confront him about some ways he's acting hypocritically. And then beginning in verse 15 through the end of the chapter is Paul's theological exposition of his rationale for, for why he opposed Peter the way he did. Now, a warning... Uh, this is a very dense theological portion of the scriptures, and so it makes me nervous because my tendency sometimes is to be dense. And so when you have a preacher who is tends towards density, engaging a text that is by definition dense, it's trouble. So I was going to try to offset that by showing a clip from Nacho Libre this morning, but that didn't work either. Uh, and so, you know, we're kind of just all over the place, so... The audiovisual stuff, uh, we're trying to figure that out. So no Nacho Libre quote uh, or clip, I apologize, but we are going to read uh, Paul here in Galatians chapter 2, and hopefully we'll figure these things out together. So if you would read with me from Galatians uh, chapter 2, verse 11, and then through the end of the chapter, verse 21, Paul writes, but when Cephas, Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles, but when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, and you remember that's the key phrase we looked at last week. When I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew... Live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Here's Paul's argument. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we have also believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one can be justified. But if. In our endeavor to be justified in Christ Jesus, we too were found to be sinners. Is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me. And gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law. Then Christ died for no purpose. This is 
God's Word. Uh, you might remember some of the themes that we've been talking about as we've approached this text. And I quoted C.S. Lewis last week from his Weight of Glory, where he says that there's a longing in each of us to be reunited with something in the universe from which we've been cut off. He says it this way. He says there's a longing to be on the inside of some door which we always have seen from the outside. That is, this is no neurotic fancy, but the truest index of our real situation. In other words, what C.S. Lewis is saying is, is there's a real deep emotional need in us to be accepted and to be loved and to be thought beautiful. Now, this is becoming a nightly routine with me and Abby. And I know I told a story about her last week, but I've got to bring another one to you this week. I was putting Abby to bed recently and Abby, I was just telling her, I love you, Abby. I love you so much. And she says, being the, the you know precocious four-year-old that she is, Daddy, why do you love me? Tell me why you love me. And I said, oh, Abby, there's so many reasons I can't possibly. Daddy, tell me them all. I want to know them all. I mean, do you see that in that little girl's heart? There's this deep emotional need in us to be accepted and to be loved and to be thought beautiful. And if you remember the Donald Miller, who's a, a Christian writer and quasi-theologian, maybe, he says, um, he says, you know, we're all, the, the, that the fall has made monkeys of us all. And we've all got this thing we do. Some of us are athletes and some of us are, are businessmen and some of us are, are, are moral people. And we're all just trying to get a bunch of people to clap for us and to tell us that we're okay. I mean, there, there really is this, this deep emotional human need to be loved and accepted and thought beautiful and worthy. And the Bible tells us a story at the very beginning of what the scripture, the story that the scripture is telling that helps us understand this. It's the story of, of the first man and the first woman, Adam and Eve, when they sinned against God. And in that moment, this is the way that the, the Bible says it, that they realized that they were naked and they were ashamed. They had lost a sense of, of the, the original beauty with which they were created. And there was a sense in them that something was wrong with them. They lost what the theologians call their original righteousness. They, they began to realize deep inside that they were somehow unacceptable, that, that they had lost something that had been beautiful before. And so what do they do? If you remember the story, you know, they hid from God and they tried to sew fig leaves together to cover their nakedness because they were ashamed. And so what that scripture is teaching us is that everybody, all of us, you and me and every teenager and every child in this room, we're all born into the world knowing we're not right, that we're not acceptable. And that we better find a way to make ourselves so. So we're all looking for righteousness. We're all looking for a verdict that says we're OK. And so Paul uses a very technical word here in this passage that describes what we're looking for. And if you look in verse 15, you'll see. That five times in verses 15 through 21, he uses this word justification. Now, justification is a legal word. It's a forensic word that means to be right. That's what it means. It means to be right. Now, remember, remember Paul's confrontation with Peter over the Jewish ceremonial laws. The, there was this idea that if you just did the right things, if you if you if you did the things that were prescribed for you for you from God, if you were circumcised. Um, you know, the Nacho Libre quote that uh, the clip that I was going to show is when he's trying to get his partner who he's wrestling with baptized because he's afraid for his soul. If you just would bab get baptized, if you just would, if you, if you would perform the right ceremonial aspects of the law, then if you just stayed within the rules and you did everything exactly the way you were supposed to, that somehow you could cleanse and beautify yourselves. 
And the issue with that group was circumcision. If, if, if that the Gentiles who were becoming Christians had to first submit themselves to circumcision before they could really enter the church. So it wasn't just Jesus. Jesus wasn't enough. It was Jesus plus something else. And Paul is very upset about this. And he confronts Peter because, see, he understands this idea of justification. It means to be right, to be acceptable. And the Bible talks about God as a judge. And what the Bible has to say very clearly to us is that we all stand before him. We come into the world and we stand before him guilty of sin. And if you're not a Christian, that may be a hard concept for you to understand. But here's what we believe. And this is crazy to even say in some sense. But we believe that when the first man and the first woman ate that fruit in the Garden of Eden way back at the very beginning of time, that when they acted in rebellion against God, that you and I acted with them. And so we all come into the world guilty before him, needing to be forgiven, needing to be justified. And when God justifies, his gavel comes down. That's what that means. It means that the verdict is in, not guilty. There's a judgment that has been made. You are right. You are holy, Ephesians 1, and blameless. You're chosen. You're loved. You're accepted. You're included. You're beautiful. See, this is what we've been longing for. God does not treat you as your sins deserve, but he brings you into his family and he makes you one of his children. All of that is what we mean here. And at issue in this passage and in this book is exactly how that happens, and there's two options. Option number one, you are justified by works of the law. Your justification... Your righteousness is something that you work for. You are made righteous by your obedience, by following the rules. And so what people who believe that do is they spend their entire lives trying to do all they can in hopes that at the end of their life, they'll they'll be a big enough record, you know, enough checks in the positive column and not so many in the negative column. And so the verdict will come down one day. Or the second option, option number two, is you're justified by faith in Jesus Christ alone. In that case, the righteousness you're looking for, what comes is an alien righteousness, Martin Luther said. It's a, it's a righteousness that is outside of you. You're not made righteous, you're declared righteous. And that's a present reality. In other words, the verdict's not something that's going to come way, you know, sometime way down there in the future. No, the verdict is in. And now you live the rest of your life out of what has already been declared to be true of you. So, what we're going to see is that in this passage, Paul's doctrine of justification is opposed to the first and is agreement with the last, and it's the one thing alone that has been the great the cause of great spiritual renewal and revival through the centuries of Christianity. Grasping and embracing this doctrine of justification by faith alone. So three things from this text. Number one, we're going to see Paul's doctrine that we are justified by faith alone. Number two, we're going to see that there's a that there's a perceived danger There's an objection that's raised to this doctrine. And we're going to talk about what it means to die to the law. And then thirdly, we're going to see Paul's defense. What it means that we live to God. So those three things, Paul's doctrine, the perceived danger of the doctrine, and the defense of his doctrine. All of that in these three verses. Let's get at it. Here we go. Let's look at the doctrine first. If you would come to verses 15 and 16 with me. It really is fun the way in verse 16 Paul does this. And if you look, you know, I am... One of the things that I used to always get in trouble with, uh, and this is probably, you know, apropos comma preacher, but in, in, in high school and in college, the one thing my English teachers told me over and over again is I was, I was apt to run on sentences. 
Now, isn't that funny that even when I wrote and didn't speak, I was still tempted to go longer than I should. And really, if you see in verse 16 here, it's real fun because Paul says the same thing three times. Now, I'm going to one of these days, Sarah is almost two, my 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 youngest daughter. And one of these days is just a test. I'm going to see how many times I can get her to say, Daddy, 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 and not interrupt her and just see how many times she'll do it. Because I think 45 would be my guess. I think she would do it. And, and that's Paul's just saying, he's saying the same thing over and over. In, in one verse, he says the same thing three times, that nobody is justified by works of the law, but everybody is trying to be. That's what he's saying there. Paul says to Peter in verse 15, we are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Do you see that there in verse 15, right at the beginning? Now, that's a strange statement, isn't it? It seems out of place to me, but it ties us back into the story of Paul's confrontation with Peter up in verses 11 through 14. Now, remember, Peter came to visit Paul in Antioch. That's what's being, the story that's being told here. And while he was there, he had table fellowship with the Gentile Christians until some men from Jerusalem, from James, came. And then Peter drew back and he withdrew and he, he separated himself and he wouldn't eat with his Gentile brothers and sisters. And the group from James was probably part of the circumcision party. We've already explained them. And they, they had gone behind Paul, questioning the validity of his gospel in all the places that he had preached. And they were insisting that faith in Jesus was not enough to make you clean and beautiful and acceptable, but you had to be circumcised as well. So in Acts 15, Jonathan, do we have this in Acts 15? Here, here's what they said in Acts 15, and it's just a powerful statement. And you see that there. Some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers. And here was their doctrine. Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. So when these guys came to Antioch, Peter refuses to eat with the circumcised Gentiles, the Christians that were his brothers and sisters. And in effect, he's saying, you don't meet my standards. And Paul goes ballistic. And what we have beginning in verse 15 is Paul's argument, and he begins with this statement. He says, we are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, Peter, you and I. And that's what Jewish people believe, that, that because they had the law, they were far superior in their commitment to everybody else, and really they were. And what Paul is alluding to here is that even in the blessing of, of being a people who possess the law, that something had gone terribly wrong among the Jewish people. They had begun to use the law as a method of self-justification. And so you get a parable that Jesus tells about a Pharisee who prays the worst prayer ever recorded in the history of mankind. He's standing in the temple and there's a tax collector who's over to the side and his prayer is, oh God, I thank you that I am not like this tax collector. I tithe. I go to temple when I'm supposed to. I do, do all the things you've asked me to do and he's a big sinner and that's his prayer. Worst prayer ever. And see, what happens is, is circumcision was a big deal to the Jewish people. It was a big deal. We've been reading about it in Genesis. It was a beautiful gift because circumcision in itself acted as a sign that pointed to the reality that there's something in us that needs to be cut out, that we have an infectious spiritual cancer and surgery is required to take it out. And circumcision was meant to show God's people that they needed a new heart. They were called over and over again to circumcise their hearts. But what Israel did and what these people who came from James did is they turned it into a requirement. That it wasn't a sign to remind them that they needed God to cleanse them, but it became a way for them to cleanse and beautify themselves. 
They took the law and turned it into a way of achieving their own righteousness, following the rules. And Paul says we're all doing this. It may not be circumcision. It may not be the law per se. It may be whether or not your kid makes the all-star team. It may be getting the most popular boy in school to think you're pretty. But we're all after righteousness. We're all seeking to be justified. We all long for the verdict to come down. And Paul is saying here to Peter, if anybody in the history of the world could have done it this way, if anybody could have been justified by works of the law, it would have been the Jews because they had the law. God's will spelled out for them, but it doesn't work. No matter how hard you try, you can't keep the rules. You can't do it. The demands are too great. You can't take the law or anything else and turn it into a moral code because it assumes that the law is outward and only is about outward moral conformity. And that's what the Jews thought. That was what it was just a matter of following the rules. But the law was after the heart. And that's what they missed. That's what we learned. Thou shalt not murder. What does Jesus say? That's not about murder. It's about murder, of course, but it's about something more than that. Thou shalt not murder is about a heart that is angry. It's about the heart. It's about the inner workings and motivations of the heart. And the funny thing is, is moralistic people, people who tend towards moralism, they don't take the law seriously enough. Because the law was meant to help Israel reflect not only on their outward religious performance, but on the deep inner motivations of the heart so they would see how deep and how profound their brokenness was and cry out to God to save them. That was what it was meant to do. But they turned it into a set of rules that were doable and they set themselves to keeping them. And Paul has to step in. He has to say, it does not work. No one is justified by works of the law. You can't do it in your own effort. You can't do enough. You can't do it well enough. You can't do it with the right motivations. You can't make yourself clean and beautiful and acceptable. It's not just about your behavior. It's about your heart. And so the teaching that Paul is getting to is that no one is justified by works of the law but only by faith in Jesus Christ. You see that there in verse 16? He says that three times as well, that there's only one way. There's only one way that you can know for sure that the verdict is in, is that, and that is by believing in Christ Jesus. And there are two things, there's, there's a couple of things going on in the original language that are key to understanding what Paul means here. The first is that when Paul says that we have believed in Christ Jesus, he uses a preposition in the, in the original language in the Greek that should literally be translated into. It's, a, it's, it's what's called... It's a dative of location. Now, and here's what he means. It means, you know, all of the talk in Christianity, and I'm on a personal mission to kind of overthrow some of this. So all of the talk of Christianity is, is how, how we reach out and we get Jesus into our hearts. But when the scripture talks about faith, it does not talk so much about how Jesus, now we're going to talk about in just a minute, Christ in me. But it doesn't talk so much about I'm the center of the universe and I'm reaching out there and getting Jesus to come and live inside of me. When it talks about believing into Jesus, it means that I am believing into him. That I am going out into him. So Paul says in Philippians 3 this way. He says that when we become Christians, we're found in Jesus. Not having a righteousness that is our own that comes from the law, but which comes through faith in Jesus Christ. By faith, the doctrine that we hold very dear is we are united to Christ Jesus. We believe into him. It's, a, it's, it's locative. And the illustration that I thought of to, to kind of illustrate, because it's a hard concept, but my family and I visited our friends, Jonathan and Jamie Winfrey, in Wales in 2004. And it was a fun trip, um, but, but in one aspect, the most miserable trip of my entire life, because I, being the responsible world traveler that I am, 
on our way from Pontypridd, Wales, to London to catch the plane to come home, uh, lost our passports. And so, uh, I didn't sleep or eat for two days, and it's a fun story. I'll tell you it sometime, and there's lots of great spiritual insight that I gained that I, that I don't have time to share now. But um, one of the things that was amazing to me is I, I, I tend to freak out about things, and, and especially this. And so, Jonathan, uh, we, where's the embassy? Let's go to the embassy. And one of the amazing things, in the middle, and I'll thankfully thank God we were in Wales and not in southern India. Um, but, but we walk through, you know, the tube and get the, and figure out, here's the embassy. And we walk to the embassy, and we go to the front gate of the embassy, and there's a long line of people, you know, waiting to get visas to come to the United States. And we walk to the guard gate and say, I am an American citizen. I've lost my passport. <laughs> the gate goes open. Come in. And what is absolutely amazing is if, if you know how these things work, uh, this is two blocks off the park, right, you know, right there in, in the heart of London. And I'm walking down the street and I'm in England. You know, I'm, I'm, in, I'm in the UK. And then the moment I walk through the guard gate and walk onto the property of the embassy, I am in the United States of America. Does that make sense? And what I mean, what Paul is saying is, is there has been that kind of a radical change in your location. That we, when we believe into Jesus, we have believed into him. We are where he is. And so Paul says weird things in, in, in Ephesians 2. He says that we are, not we will be, not one day I hope in the future. We are seated with him in the heavenlies. It's this concept of being united with Christ. That in faith we have been bound to him. We've been so closely tied to him. That if you look down at verse 20, Paul says... That I have been crucified with Christ. What goes for him goes for me. That's the phrase you need to remember. What goes for him goes for me. So see, we are powerless to live up to the law's demands. But Jesus was perfectly obedient. Jesus was never unkind or unfeeling. He was never indifferent to the pain of others. He never lusted or coveted. He never dishonored his parents. He was never greedy or a workaholic or lazy. He always glorified God. He always, he was always angry when the weak and the poor were taken advantage of. He was always, with every breath, he loved God with all of his heart and soul and mind and strength. He was the most perfect and the most beautiful being in all creation. And God's verdict has come down upon Jesus. When he went down to the Jordan River to be baptized by John, a voice from heaven came. And here's what it said. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And if you're a Christian... If your faith and your trust is in Jesus alone and not in your own ability to earn your righteousness for yourself through your own efforts, then no matter what big nasties there may be in your life, the same verdict has come down for you. God says, you are my son. Because Jesus is the son. He says, God says, you are beautiful. But not because you're beautiful. Because he's beautiful. God says, you are righteous, not because you're righteous, but because Jesus is righteous. God says, I delight in you, and I hate to break it to you, not because you're so delightful, but because he delights in his son, and by faith we are in him. And so Martin Luther says it this way, and this is a long quote, but it's so wonderful, I had to, I had to give it to you. Here's what Martin Luther, the great, the great um, Reformation theologian, he says, so... Have we nothing to do 
to obtain this righteousness? And the answer is no, nothing at all. For this righteousness comes by doing nothing, hearing nothing, knowing nothing, but rather in knowing and believing this only, that Christ has gone to the right hand of the Father, not to become our judge, but to become for us our wisdom, our righteousness, our holiness, our salvation. Now, God sees no sin in us, for in this heavenly righteousness sin has no place. So now we may certainly think, although I still sin, I don't despair because Christ lives, who is both my righteousness and my eternal life. In that righteousness I have no sin, no fear, no guilty conscience, no fear of death. I am indeed a sinner in this life and in my own righteousness. But I have another life, another righteousness above this life, which is in Christ, the Son of God, who knows no sin or death, but is eternal righteousness and eternal life. I mean, that's Paul's doctrine. No one's justified by works of the law, but only by faith in Jesus Christ. Now, We have to move on through this text, and you'll see that there's a very real objection that Paul raises that I need to raise to you this morning, and I felt it on Sunday afternoon last week. And that is that if we are justified by faith in Jesus and not because of our own obedience, then here's the question. Does that make obedience irrelevant? If the gospel's true, if God loves us because of Jesus and there's nothing we can do to qualify ourselves for his love and nothing we can do to disqualify ourselves for his love, then does that mean that we can do whatever we want? Is obedience optional? And if you're really going to wrestle through the implications of grace, you're going to have to deal with this question. And Paul does, again, in Romans 6, and this is kind of parallel to that. Does grace make obedience irrelevant? That's what Paul means in verse 17. Do you see there? But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ Jesus, we too are found sinners, is then Christ the servant of sin? In other words, does the doctrine of justification by faith alone promote sin? The gospel secures us in God's love, but does the security create apathy? I was a youth pastor for a long time, and, I, and this would drive my parents crazy, and I will confess my sin to you. I was a younger man at the time, and, I, and I, it thrilled me to drive parents insane. And so I would do it all the time just to get under their skin, and I would tell my kids, love God and do whatever you want. And the parents would say, no, 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 you can't say that. That's dangerous. Right? I mean, this is dangerous. I mean, does... does does believing the gospel of justification by faith alone promote sin? And the consistent answer in Scripture, and the one that Paul gives here, is an emphatic no. And the danger is that we would move from legalism, um, from an obsession with the law as a way of making ourselves righteous, to what the theologians, this big word, antinomianism, to where the law, uh, you know, I can just do whatever I want. The law is irrelevant. No, that's not it at all. And if you would look at your assurance of pardon, you'll see. He says, if we claim to have fellowship with God and we walk in darkness, we lie. And those parents... <laughs> My poor parents, when I was a youth pastor, they would say, no, no, you can't. Listen, let me explain teenagers to you. Right? If you take away the threat of punishment, then you're removing all motivation for obedience. There's one problem with that. That assumes that the only real motivation for obedience is fear. God's going to get you. That's what they wanted me to tell their kids. See, what's happening here, Paul's confronting that assumption. He's confronting that assumption. He's saying, why do you go to church on Sundays? Why do you read the scriptures? Do you do it so God will love you, or do you do those things because you know you're already loved? See, grace doesn't make obedience irrelevant. It provides the proper motivation for it. It's a mistake to think that Jesus came just to offer us forgiveness. He came to fulfill in us by the power of the Spirit the design to overcome our brokenness and to make us what we are truly meant to be as people who are made in God's image. 
But only the gospel can produce in you the freedom and the joy that are required for you to truly live for God. And that's where Paul's taking us in this passage. You can't really live for God if you're still trying to obey the law to make yourself clean and beautiful and accepted. You have to die. Look at verse 19. You have to die to the law before you can live for God. And Paul says that it was through the law that he died to the law. In other words, the law is not a way you justify yourself. Its purpose is very clear. It's to show you you can't, that you need somebody else to do it. And so Paul's saying the law worked. It fulfilled its purpose in my life through the law and what it did to my conscience and how it drove me to cry out for God to save me. I have now died to it so that I might live to God. You see, there's an objection in Paul begins to answer this objection in verse 18 when he says, if I rebuild, look there, if I rebuild what I tear down, I prove myself to be a sinner. It's a very cryptic and very difficult statement. But here's what I think Paul means there. He's saying, he calls himself a transgressor and for two reasons. First, because he had failed to keep the law. He couldn't do it. But even more than that, his motivation for trying to keep it was wrong. His motivation was wrong. So, Let's talk about that for a minute as we transition into what does it mean then for us to live for God? Now, take the Ten Commandments. Pick your favorite. I don't care. One of the ten. Okay? If you're doing those things, if you're doing that because that's what a good person does, if you're doing it, if your obedience is in the hope that it will gain you God's approval or to make yourself feel superior to less committed people, then you're doing, then you're denying, in your doing, you're denying the very purpose of the law. When Jesus summed up the law, he said it was about love. Do you remember that? Love for God and love for one another. So if you're obeying God as a way of earning a right standing with him, you're not doing it for him. You're doing it for you. You're not loving God. You're loving yourself. So let me illustrate. If you can think back with me, I've been married. How long? 12 years now? What is it? 19? Yeah, almost 12 years. I can almost remember dating. Now, when you're dating, if you send a girl flowers and you take her to a nice restaurant and you spend lots of money on her uh, to impress her and to get her to like you, then who are you doing those things for? Are you doing them for her or are you doing them for you? Uh, Charles Spurgeon told a story that I have to relate to you because it's so great about what, about, about what I'm talking about. He says, Charles Spurgeon, once upon a time, there was a gardener who gave an enormous carrot, who, who grew an enormous carrot. So he took it to his king and he said, my Lord, this is the greatest carrot I've ever grown or ever will grow. Therefore, I want to present it to you as a token of my love and respect for you. <laughs> and the king was touched and discerned the man's heart. And so he turned to the so as he turned to go, the king said, wait, you are clearly a good steward of the earth. I own a plot of land right next to yours. I want to give it to you freely as a gift so you can garden all of it. And the gardener was amazed and delighted and went home rejoicing. <laughs> There was a nobleman at the king's court who overheard all this and he said, man, if that's what you get for a carrot, what would, what would you, the king give you for something better? So the next day, the nobleman came before the king and he was leading a handsome black stallion and he bowed low and said, my lord, I breed horses and this is the greatest horse I've ever bred or ever will. Therefore, I want to present it to you as a token of my love and respect for you. But the king discerned the man's heart. He said, thank you, took the horse and merely dismissed him. The nobleman was perplexed. So the king said, let me explain. The gardener was giving me the carrot, but you were giving yourself the horse. See, a pastor in our denomination, Tim Keller, he says the inescapable point of the contrast Paul's making is that Paul's saying he never really lived for God when he was trying to save himself through the obedience of the law. He was being very moral. 
and good, but it was for Paul and not for God. And if you obey God without knowing you're accepted, then you're obeying to get a reward. You're obeying for what you get from him. You're obeying so that he will, he will, the verdict will come down and not out of sheer love for God himself. But now that Paul understands he's been justified and accepted, he has a new motive that is far more powerful and far more wholesome than he had before. He wants to simply live for the one who loved me and gave himself for me. And so we have to ask ourselves, how does that happen? How does that happen? How does that new motivation of the law come as we wrap to a conclusion? And go back to Paul's doctrine of our union with Christ with me for a minute, that when we believe into Jesus, we believe into him. What goes for him goes for us. So much so that if you look at verse 20 with me, you'll see Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. Let me not, I don't want to water this down. Let me, let me explain to you what that means. It means that when Jesus died, Paul died with him. If your faith is in Jesus, when Jesus died on the cross, you were crucified along with him. And that's very significant because you see salvation. What we believe about salvation, it involves a death and a resurrection. Being saved, as it's talked about in Christian circles, is not about bad people becoming good people. It's about dead people coming to life. The verb there, I am crucified, it's in the perfect tense. And that's significant because it means it's not something that happened so far back in the past. Paul lives every day as one who's been crucified. One way of life has come to an end. Our former way of life, you remember that? A few weeks ago when we looked at, at Paul's story of his conversion, our former way of life has been put to death. It's been buried with Jesus. We've been crucified with him, but we've not only died, we've also been resurrected to newness of life. And so Paul quotes, so Paul so closely identifies himself with Jesus. If you look there in verse 20, it's a beautiful phrase. He says, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The one who spoke stars into existence has taken up residence in our hearts. Jesus is in us working out the love of the Father and his love for the world through us, his intent is to live his life of obedience to the Father through us. And so Paul says, now I can really live for God. And that's what it means to be a Christian. It means that you come into a whole new life. It means you do some of the things you used to do, but you do them with a new power, with a new motivation at work in your life, with a new aim and a new goal in mind, not selfishly motivated, but now with eyes fixed on Jesus, verse 20, who loved me and gave himself for me. Now, isn't that beautiful? That Jesus, he loved me. I want you, he loves you. No matter who you are. So much so that he gave himself in your place. He died where you should have died. He suffered the wrath that should have been yours. And the more that we come to see Jesus' self-sacrificing love, the more it'll melt our hearts and move us to radical sacrifice and love for God and others. That's how it works. That's how it works. That's what we're being taught. It comes from knowing and believing Jesus' love, working hard, to prove yourself and to gain acceptance, justifying yourself through the works of the law will only make you full of anger and resentment and insecurity. But the gospel of grace humbles, humbles you if you're proud. It secures you if you're fearful. So here's how you know. Look at verse 21. Here's how you know. Here's how you get a handle on your grasp of the gospel. Number, question number one, do you live for God? You listen closely to your heart beating in your chest. And in your heartbeat, do you hear the heartbeat of Jesus? Do you live for him? Paul says I, I, I live, that I might live to God. But if you look there in verse 21, but, but the second question is, but can you do that and not set aside grace? Can you do it and not 
make much of yourself and not become proud or smug or demanding. Not set aside grace. See, if you are committed to earning a righteousness through your own hard work, then Christ died for nothing. You can't have him. This table we're going to celebrate in a few minutes together is not yours. But if you know you're weak and poor, and that your only hope is that someone would come and provide what you cannot provide for yourself, then this table is accessible to you. The old hymn, Come Ye Sinners. <laughs> Come ye sinners, poor and wretched, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus, ready, stands to save you, full of pity, joined with power. He is able, he is able, he is willing. Doubt no more. As we think about coming to the table, come, ye weary, heavy laden, bruised and broken by the fall. If you tarry till you're better, you will never come at all. Not the righteous, not the righteous sinners. Jesus came to call. Let not conscience make you linger, nor fitness fondly dream. All the fitness he requires is to feel your need of him. And this he gives you. This he gives you. Tis the Spirit's rising dream. Lo, the incarnate God assembled, ascended, pleads the merit of his blood. Venture on him. Venture wholly. Let no other trust intrude. None but Jesus. None but Jesus can do helpless sinners good. Let's pray together this morning. And I want to ask you to take a minute in the silence to prepare your heart as we get ready to come to the Lord's table together. And ask that you would pray with me. Jesus, you are our only hope. You are our wisdom, our righteousness, our salvation. You and you alone. Uh, we have no hope if we trust in our own uh, abilities, if we trust in our own talents, in our own good works. Uh, you, you say, cursed are all those who seek to be justified by the law. And yet, Jesus, we are told here in this book of Galatians that you and your infinite love became a curse for us. That you, the beloved of the Father, took upon yourself our curse that we might come to know the love and to believe the love that God has for us in you. That we might come to know what it means to be blessed and to have the Father's face. Thank you that we uh, are invited, poor and wretched as we are, to come to this table together this morning and to celebrate your provision for us. May it be a time of deep reverence. May it be a time of great joy as we celebrate our Savior and our Lord Jesus. We glory in you and you alone and boast in your cross, which is our salvation. And we pray these things in your name. Amen. Amen. As you pick your children up, uh, be extra enthusiastic in your thank yous to the child, to the nursery, or not nursery, what do we call it? Kids worship volunteers because we're a few minutes late. But uh, if your faith is in Jesus Christ, then because he shed his blood and had his body broken for you, you can leave knowing that you have the Father's blessing and favor resting upon your life. And so that's what the words of the benediction are meant to, to do, to speak over you the Father's disposition for, for you if your faith is in Jesus. So receive the benediction this morning. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.